Network. This is Democracy Now! Russia attacked Ukraine, and Russia is the country which must take a step now and do something so that peace becomes possible. What's necessary is the withdrawal of troops. As Russian and Ukrainian forces battle for control of the eastern city of Bakhmut, calls are growing for the war to end. But deep divisions remain on how this could happen. A critical meeting of the G20 has ended without consensus on the Ukraine war. We'll get the latest. Then we go to Huwara in the occupied West Bank. On Sunday, hundreds of Israeli settlers attacked the village, setting homes and cars on fire, carrying out what's been described as a pogrom, all while the Israeli army looked on. What we've seen here in this house is evidence of how big the crime carried out by the settlers, covered and protected by the army is. It is clear that this move is supported by a political decision from the Israeli government. Israel's new finance minister has called for Huara to be wiped out or erased. We'll go to Huara and Tel Aviv. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A critical meeting of foreign ministers from the G20 has ended in New Delhi, India, without any agreement on the Ukraine war. The meeting wrapped up after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov spoke briefly in the first reported high-level meeting between U.S. and Russian officials in months. Their 10-minute conversation came after a Russian missile slammed into a high-rise apartment building in the Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia, killing at least four people. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials said for the first time they're contemplating a tactical withdrawal from the eastern city of Bakhmut, where Russian forces have mostly cut off remaining civilians from humanitarian aid. This is Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking earlier this week. The hardest thing is still Bakhmut and the battles that are essential for the city's defense. I'll give you just one example. We are holding the staff meeting quite often now, at least twice a week. The last meeting was on Thursday, and today General Sersky reported that since this last meeting, about 800 enemies have been killed in his direction alone. Russia does not count people at all, sending them to constant assaults on our positions. The intensity of the fighting is only increasing. Finland's parliament has voted overwhelmingly to join NATO, setting the country up to become the military alliance's 31st member. Wednesday's vote came just days after Finland began constructing a 120-mile wall topped with razor wire along its 800-mile border with Russia. In Hungary, the party of far-right Prime Minister Viktor Orban said Wednesday it'll endorse the expansion of NATO to include Finland and Sweden. That leaves Turkey as the only NATO holdout. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Tayyip Erdogan has rejected Sweden's accession to NATO after accusing it of harboring dissidents he considers terrorists. Sweden and Finland had hoped to join NATO simultaneously. At least, that's what the United States government wanted. The Biden administration has announced $619 million in high-tech arms sales to Taiwan, including new missiles for its F-16 fighter jets. The deal will primarily benefit weapons makers Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. After the sale was announced, Taiwan reported China's Air Force flew warplanes into airspace Taiwan considers part of its air defense identification zone for the second consecutive day. 
The U.S. Air Force says it's relieved six officers at a North Dakota nuclear missile base after their units failed a nuclear safety inspection. It's not clear exactly what lapses prompted the firings. The Minot Air Force Base is home to more than two dozen B-52 nuclear-capable bombers, as well as 165 Minuteman III nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles. This follows a previous safety lapse at the base in 2007, when a B-52 bomber flew to Louisiana carrying six nuclear-armed cruise missiles without the knowledge of the flight's crew. In Israel, police fired tear gas and stun grenades Wednesday at thousands of people who'd blocked a highway in Tel Aviv to protest plans by the far-right government of Benjamin Netanyahu to gut Israel's judiciary. Eleven Israelis were hospitalized with injuries. It was the first time during weeks of mass protests that police used large-scale violence against Israeli citizens. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, dozens of protesters dressed as handmaids from Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel the Handmaid's Tale rallied outside Israel's Supreme Court Wednesday. Basically, it feels like we can say goodbye to democracy, uh, because on one hand, the Knesset will have the ability to pass any law they want. On the other hand, uh, the, the court will not have the ability to stop anything like that. Any court that would, hit, that would hurt whether women or LGBTs or any other minority um, is going to pass with no one to stop it. The protests came as the U.S. State Department condemned the comments of Israel's finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, who on Wednesday called on Israel to erase the Palestinian town of Hawara. His comments came after Jewish settlers attacked the town Sunday, burning cars and homes and killing a Palestinian man. This is State Department spokesperson Ned Price. were irresponsible. They were repugnant. They were disgusting. And just as we condemn Palestinian incitement to violence, uh, we condemn these provocative remarks that also amount to incitement to violence. We call on Prime Minister Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials to publicly and clearly reject and disavow these comments. Later in the broadcast, we'll go to Hawara on the occupied West Bank, as well as Tel Aviv. The U.S. intelligence community has rejected claims that a foreign power was responsible for a series of unexplained injuries and illnesses suffered by U.S. officials working overseas. The episodes were dubbed Havana Syndrome after diplomats at the U.S. and Canadian embassies in Cuba reported dizziness, headaches and other symptoms in 2016. Since then, about 1,500 U.S. officials have reported ailments in 90 countries. After a two-year investigation and assessment by seven U.S. intelligence agencies found no credible evidence that any U.S. adversary possessed a weapon that could explain the ailments, which the report said were likely due to pre-existing conditions, conventional illnesses and environmental factors. At the White House, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the report's findings did not mean the U.S. would end medical support for those suffering. This doesn't change the commitment that the president has in making sure that, um, you know, these families or our colleagues uh, in the workforce uh, get the, the help and assistance uh, that they need. And we're, they're going to continue uh, to, uh, to work through that. 
In Greece, at least 46 people were killed and dozens more hospitalized after a passenger train collided with a freight train late Tuesday in the central city of Larissa. It was the worst rail disaster in Greek history. On Wednesday, the prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, accepted the resignation of top transportation officials and said the crash was primarily due to, quote, tragic human error. Greece has declared three days of national mourning. Meanwhile, in Athens, police in riot gear fired tear gas at protesters who gathered outside the offices of the private company responsible for maintaining Greece's railways. Greece privatized its rail system and other public infrastructure in 2017 as part of an IMF bailout amidst the debt crisis. New York City has agreed to pay a multi-million dollar settlement to protesters who were aggressively boxed in or kettled by New York police during the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that swept the country following the police murder of George Floyd in 2020. Over 300 people who were kettled, then beaten, detained or arrested by New York police at the June 4, 2020 Bronx protest will each receive $21,500. It's believed to be the largest class action settlement in a case of mass arrest. About a third of the demonstrators also previously settled with the city in separate claims. A Human Rights Watch investigation said the NYPD's conduct that day amounted to, quote, serious violations of international human rights law. In California, around 80 prisoners at two immigration and customs enforcement facilities have gone on hunger strike for nearly two weeks. They say they are willing to risk their lives to fight against the inhumane conditions they're facing. A group of the hunger strikers from the Mesa Verde and Golden State Annex jails sued ICE and the private prison corporation GEO last week for retaliating against them by cutting off their heat, denying family visits and recreational time and threatening solitary confinement. This is a striker speaking anonymously over the phone from the Golden State Annex. Listen closely. I don't see it. It's a prison. It's four walls. People packed in here in sardines. So they could call it in other words for this place. It's a prison for me. The hunger strike follows a labor strike protesting prisoners' $1 per day wage for eight-hour shifts. Earlier this week, local activists held a solitary protest at the Oakland State Building. Also this week, demonstrations took place across the United States, marking 20 years of harm by ICE, the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Protection. Organizers are calling for an end to government funding of the agencies, which over the past 20 years have systematically targeted immigrants, Muslims and communities of color using surveillance, detention, torture, military occupation and inhumane immigration policies, they say. This is Dr. Mahalal from the Muslim Counterpublics Lab, speaking at Wednesday's protest in D.C. DHS has surveilled, detained, tortured, and punished communities with draconian immigration laws. DHS has also targeted Black Lives Matter activists, created and spearheaded a countering violent extremism program to target Muslim communities, 
tearing families apart, putting people in cages, and executing foreign nationals across the border. A judge has ordered Starbucks to reinstate illegally fired employees, reopen closed stores, halt union-busting tactics, and take other reparative measures after ruling Starbucks engaged in egregious and widespread misconduct following the establishment of the chain's first unionized store in Buffalo, New York. Meanwhile, Dozens of white-collar Starbucks workers have signed an open letter condemning Starbucks union-busting and protesting the company's return-to-office mandate. The workers say, quote, morale is at an all-time low and warn, quote, these actions are fracturing trust in Starbucks leadership. In Illinois, residents and activists from Chicago's South Side successfully passed two measures in this week's city election, calling for housing protections related to the construction of the new Obama Presidential Center. The 19-acre center will house a public library, playground, community centers, and a museum. But community members in the majority Black South Shore say the project has already led to gentrification and displacement. The measure passed Tuesday calls for eviction protections and rental assistance, city funding for home repairs and mortgage assistance, development of affordable housing on city-owned lots, and 75 percent affordable housing on a vacant city-owned lot in nearby Woodlawn. Groups organizing with the Obama Community Benefits Agreement Coalition celebrated the overwhelming approval of the non-binding referenda and say they'll continue fighting to make sure Chicago follows through on their demands. And Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg has announced he's been diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer, giving him an estimated three to six months to live. It was 51 years ago that The New York Times began publishing excerpts of the Pentagon Papers leaked by Dan Ellsberg, 7,000 pages of top-secret documents outlining the Pentagon's secret history of U.S. involvement in Vietnam since the 1940s. The leak exposed years of government lies and would end up helping to end the war in Vietnam and lead to a major victory for press freedom. Dan Ellsberg reports that since his cancer diagnosis, he's done several interviews and webinars on topics including Ukraine, nuclear weapons and First Amendment issues. Ellsberg wrote, quote, I work better under a deadline. It turns out I live better under a deadline. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, calls are growing for the war in Ukraine to end, but deep divisions remain on how this could happen. More in a minute.
Something's Wrong by Kate Fagan, here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I am Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. A critical meeting of foreign ministers from the G20 has just ended in New Delhi, India, without any agreement on the war in Ukraine. India's foreign minister said, quote, we could not reconcile as various parties held differing views. Earlier today, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken spoke briefly with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in their first meeting since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The G20 meeting comes a week after China released a 12-point piece plan to end the war. On Wednesday, Chinese President Xi Jinping joined with the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, calling for a ceasefire in negotiations. The United States has dismissed China's proposal. On Wednesday, Blinken said he has seen, quote, zero evidence that Russian President Vladimir Putin's ready to engage in negotiations. Meanwhile, the Italian prime minister, Georgia Maloney, has urged the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to play a central role in facilitating ceasefire negotiations. The G20 meeting comes as intense fighting continues in eastern Ukraine, where Russian forces have almost fully surrounded the city of Bakhmut, where thousands of Ukrainian civilians have been cut off from humanitarian aid. Ukrainian officials say they're now contemplating a tactical withdrawal from the city. To talk more about the possibility of negotiations to end the fighting, we're joined by two guests. From Berlin, we're joined by Wolfgang Sporer, a conflict manager, adjunct professor at the Hertie School in Berlin. From 2004, 14 to 2020. He was the head of human rights for the special monitoring mission in Kyiv of OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And in London, we're joined by Vladislav Zubak, professor of international history at the London School of Economics. His December article for foreign affairs is headlined, No One Would Win a Long War in Ukraine. The West Must Avoid the Mistakes of World War I. He's the author of Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Let's begin with Professor Vladislav Zubak. Um, Let's take the title of your piece as you talk about no one would win a long war in Ukraine, and you put negotiations in context going back to World War I. Can you lay out your argument and what you think needs to be done? Well, thank you. Good to be on your show. It's, uh, I would call it untimely false, because the moment my article was published, President Zelensky of Ukraine declared in, uh, in the U.S. Congress uh, his desire for a complete victory. So uh, my, uh, uh, I should say in advance that uh, my proposal was not to impose any negotiations in any way, because it's manifestly unfeasible. Um, I'm very skeptical, even more today than back in December, that any sides are ready for negotiations. My idea was to map out how would it look after Russia uh, uh, has to accept its defeat and how to make it a more palatable uh, solution uh, for some parts of the Russian elites that want to switch from this uh, attitude of aggression, aggression and imperialism to a different, more pragmatic uh, approach to the West. So I, I went through several uh, obvious aspects of uh, possible maps. First of all, 
continue to help Ukraine, of course, to achieve military gains, but also indicate on a political level to Russian elites and Russian populace that this war is unwinnable for them. And uh, they, the longer the war uh, continues, uh, there will be a greater uh, danger of another collapse, just as uh, what happened to the Soviet Union 30 years ago. The second part of this map is to offer some possible carrots up to negotiations, up to trade-offs, uh, to return Russia after it accepts its defeat and withdraws its forces from Ukraine into the uh, you know, uh, international economic, financial, and political space. In political sense, I, I wrote that we need to offer uh, the return of legit legitimacy to certain individuals and certain groups of Russian elites as a trade-off for them accepting a defeat. In economic uh, field, there should be some talk about the conditions for removing sanctions, because we know from the Cold War, that, and actually from the history of World War One, after Germany accepted an armistice, it was still subject to very humiliating and, de and, and painful blockade uh, by, by the Allies. So what, uh, you know, there should be some discussion, what will Russians gain economically if they accept uh, status quo ante and uh, agree to talk with Ukraine on the damage control. And financially, there's an issue, of course, of uh, frozen assets and compensation to Ukraine. All we hear from, uh, um, from some uh, supporters of Ukraine and Ukrainians themselves is about sticks and punishment. We don't hear anything about carrots, which is understandable. We are in the midst of brutal uh, war where Russians committed so many atrocities. But without certain carrots at least addressed for the post-war period, we risk uh, repeating the dangerous uh, path uh, after World War I. Uh, Professor Zubok, that foreign affairs piece, I mean, speaking of, uh, you just mentioned that the war uh, may be unwinnable for Russia, but you begin the foreign affairs piece uh, by citing comments by uh, General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He said that the probability of a complete Ukrainian military victory was not high. Nevertheless, he said President Biden wanted Ukraine to decide whether to negotiate with Russia. Let's go to his comments. He made these comments in November. The military task of militarily kicking the Russians physically out of Ukraine is a very difficult task. And it's not going to happen the next couple of weeks unless the Russian army completely collapses, which is unlikely. So in terms of probability, uh, the probability of a Ukrainian military victory defined as kicking the Russians out of all of Ukraine to include what they define or what they claim is Crimea, to the probability of that happening anytime soon is not high. The Russian military is really hurting bad. So you want to negotiate at a time when you're at your strength and your opponent is at weakness. And it's possible, maybe, that there'll be a political solution. So, Professor Zubak, those were comments that General Mark Milley made uh, in November. Your response to what he said, uh, and especially this, this comment that he made about uh, negotiating from a position of strength, uh, how do you assess the situation now? Uh, and what prospects do you see for any talks between Ukraine and Russia? Well, we have three months when um, neither side made uh, any breakthrough after the spectacular 
liberation of uh, parts of Ukrainian territory by the Ukrainian army. So more and more people, including Farid Zakari on CNN, began to talk about a stalemate, which is what uh, was the starting point of my piece in December. But uh, yeah, I'm not a military expert and uh, war is a highly volatile thing. So I think Ukrainians disagree with Mili and they, they're more confident than Mili in their own capacities to inflict uh, uh, humiliating military defeats and even uh, forcing Russia out of Crimea. They have uh, they, you know, secret plan. They have various uh, stratagems for that, um, which I'm not aware of. But we may ha have surprises. But what I want to stress, Milly is, is a good authority because he went through uh, several wars where you achieve military goals, but you don't achieve political goals. The war in Iraq showed that. The war in Afghanistan showed that. Um, it, it, so in a sense, we, to add to his argument about the, uh, that the military, uh, uh, definite military defeat, complete military defeat of Russia is unlikely, I would add a political factor. As long as um, uh, Putin and his entourage continues to view this war as a war about heritage and the war of defeat or uh, defeat of Ukraine or defeat of Russia, which equals in his mind to the, um, you know, demise of Russia. So until then, we have an intractable political dilemma. There is no political counterplay to this, no political alternative that the West offers to Putin. There were a few words by Biden recently, he said, and also this is not a war against Russian people and all that. But, you know, it needs to be more loud and more pronounced and more specific, I would say, so that parts of Russian elites and parts of populace, populace would see, wait a minute, it's not about a dilemma whether we uh, win or perish. It's a, it's a senseless war. And we better end it soon. So, you know, the, the West must come up with something more politically specific to address Russian perennial insecu insecurity and Russian concerns, which is not easy. You know, the, the third part of my article is about selling peace. There's so many people who would accuse me of appeasing Putin, which was not my intention, who uh, blamed me for offering a ramp off uh, for Russia, which was not my intention. My intention was to avoid the aftermath of the war, which would be dangerous both for Russia with nuclear weapons in Russia and for its neighbors and for the architecture of European peace in general. Wolfgang Sporer, you uh, were involved in the Minsk uh, uh, talks from the outset. Uh, could you talk a little bit, give us some background uh, of this war? Uh, you were involved, as I said, from 2014 with the Russian uh, annexation of Crimea as a member of the OSCE's uh, special monitoring mission. Well, uh, the talks that took place in Minsk were there to implement the so-called package of measures that was concluded in uh, March or in March of 20, uh, 20, uh, 2015. Um, this, in essence, meant there were security provisions and there were political provisions. Um, political provisions were, in essence, about giving more rights to uh, the people living beyond the so-called contact line, whereas the, whereas the political provisions were about 
uh, also transforming the state of Ukraine for making it in, into a more decentralized society, etc. The security provisions, however, were in essence about getting a ceasefire. And both parts of these provisions were never fulfilled because the Russian Federation really never showed a big interest in fulfilling the security provisions of the Minsk agreements. And the Ukraine never really felt a big intention, in my opinion, to fulfill the political provisions of the Minsk agreements. However, I think it is a mistake to believe that these Minsk agreements, just because they did not lead to full implementation, were actually a complete, uh, a complete failure, because they were not. And this is where we can learn uh, potentially some things for the situation today. Uh, the Minsk agreements did not solve the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. They did not. But they did bring about uh, certain humanitarian, uh, humanitarian positive steps. They brought about temporary ceasefires. They brought about uh, disengagement zones around the humanitarian, humanitarian facilities. They brought about the reconstruction of critical infrastructure. So they brought about humanitarian steps. They did a second thing, and this is they kept a minimum of trust between the sides, between the Russians and the Ukraine, between the Russian Federation and Ukraine, uh, because they were simply meeting every uh, every two weeks, and they had a, a real possibility to voice their concerns, to talk to each other, to talk to each other officially, but also to talk to each other you know, outside of the official settings, which is something that brings uh, a minimum, minimum of, of trust. Um, so, and therefore, my proposal was to somehow try to get to proper negotiations, to real political negotiations uh, of a ceasefire in the current conflict via first really small steps. That means... Why can Russia and Ukraine not find a forum, an internationally mediated forum, where they would talk about exactly humanitarian protection zones, about uh, disengagement around the atomic power plant in Zaporizhia, uh, about uh, small potential ceasefires for the beginning of school, for the harvest, for the sowing of the fields? Um, this would bring about these exact same advantages, namely um, humanitarian advantages and every life saved is a big step in the right direction. Secondly, the ground could be prepared to establish some kind of little small trust which has been completely lost by now uh, by, 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 by the sides. And thirdly, such a forum where the sides would meet and be, uh, be in a position to interact on a permanent basis with neutral mediation, but with uh, other countries such as the West as observers, would probably also have a de-escalatory effect. This would probably likely have the effect of uh, preventing uh, escalation that might, may otherwise uh, take place. So this is what we can maybe take from the failed Minsk negotiations forward into some kind of segue into negotiations, how they could start now. So Wolfgang Spohr, take that a step further. 
Where do you see these kind of mini or pre-negotiations taking place? And what countries do you see mediating that negotiation? I mean, today you have the image of uh, Lavrov and um, uh, Blinken shaking hands. Uh, but at the same time, you have the U.S. increasing tension with China sending over $600 uh, million in weapons to Taiwan. You have um, uh, Putin— um, and uh, Xi Jinping's alliance. Where do you see this happening? Um, the location is, I think, of secondary importance. By now, I can see Istanbul. Let us not forget that Istanbul is the place where right now Russian and Ukrainian officials are sitting together on the daily, on a daily basis, negotiating in, in the context of the, of the Black Sea European, um, uh, grain in Black Sea, uh, grain initiative. So Istanbul as a location would be, I think, a, a good one. A more important is the question, who could play the role of a mediator? Um, I hear on, on many occasions that people think about uh, personalities like Brazilian President Lula. We just heard in your news that uh, potentially uh, Indian, Indian Prime Minister Modi. I'm a little bit skeptical of this, as uh, I would not be surprised if either Ukraine or Russia actually rejects would reject um, these countries as a mediator because they do not actually they would they would probably not um, assign that amount of impartiality uh, to, to to these countries. It is my guess at the moment. However, I think organizations such as the United Nations or the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation, would be ideally suited because they are kind of neutral by definition. That means the UN or the OSCE could basically give a coat, could, could give the role or a coat of, of mediator to, a, uh, to, a, to, a, to an eminent personality that enjoys the uh, trust by both Russia and Ukraine, and such personalities still do exist. So the setting would be, this would be under the auspices of the United Nations um, or the OSCE taking place in Istanbul or in, in, a, in a comparable comparable city with the Ukraine and Russia as the main participants, but, which is important, particularly for the de-escalatory uh, function of this facility uh, with um, the West, the United States, the European Union, China, India and Turkey uh, as, 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 as observers of this process. They are to facilitate when they can. They are to work with their allies when they can and, and when needed. Now, the question is, why should the sides to the conflict at this point in time, be ready to engage in something like this. Let me just underline, participating in such negotiations does not cost the sides anything. It does not mean a change in the position in the field. It does not mean uh, giving up any type of political or military position that you have held so far. So these would be uh, negotiations that could be entered into at zero cost, for the sides, but also, but with potentially great benefit, but therefore they should also be entered into 
with no preconditions. And I think it would be the duty of the West on the one side and of China and, on the, and, China and India on the other side to convince both Russia and Ukraine to inform them constructively that a participation in such negotiations would be deemed as highly welcome. Uh, Professor Zubok, if you could respond to what uh, uh, our guest Wolfgang said uh, and also talk uh, another article that you wrote uh, in The Spectator last year, just days after the invasion, uh, headlined the post-Soviet roots of the war in Ukraine, in which you talk about the significance of the Crimea, uh, Khrushchev in 1954, handing over Crimea uh, to uh, Ukraine, uh, the Soviet Republic, and the fact that you've said that Crimea is uh, the principal or one of the principal op obstacles to uh, Russia and Ukraine speaking at the moment. Well, you raised two very important points, and, and, and I'm, uh, I read with great interest what uh, uh, Dr. Sporer wrote, uh, Volgan Sporer wrote, about the importance of talks. And I'm all in favor of this idea um, for a sort of a dry run of talks of the future. You know, we have plenty of experience during the Cold War when, for instance, talks on POW or MIAs were taking during the taking place during the Korean War between the sides, and they, you know, the the war still lasted and a stalemate for a couple of years, if not more. And then suddenly Stalin died, and a new political and Eisenhower was elected, and a new political situation emerged, and the same kind of you know dry run talks, almost uh, you know futile talks, suddenly became a vehicle for signing an armistice. So the very existence of this uh, venue, or I would say practice where the sides are accustomed to meet and talk is really, really important to prepare for the future. I would be very skeptical about involving multilateral organizations or organizations like OSCE for one simple reason. In the, in the Russian eyes, you know, most of members of the OSCE are members of NATO. And also Turkey, of course, is very important, but Turkey is also is a member of NATO, although an unusual one. So, you know, what's important, I think, not only uh, credibility and impartiality, but also power. So, you know, previous negotiations that led to some kind of solutions. I'm not saying that those solutions were, um, you know, good or bad, just solutions to military conflicts. Like, you know, the end of the Korean War I mentioned, the, the end of the first Indochina War, the Geneva Accords, uh, even the Paris talks that ended the second uh, Indochina War between the United States and uh, North Vietnam. They involved uh, several parties, but not multilateral organizations. So for me, you know, for, <laughs> In, you know, I'm, I don't have that experience that um, you know, Wolfgang Spohr has, obviously. I'm a historian. But for me, the ideal combination would be Ukraine and the U.S. on one side and Russia and China on the other. On Crimea, on Crimea, of course, we have a, it as a, a bone of contention um, between the two sides. But let me say it's it, it became much worse now, much worse, because from the Russian perspective, if uh, Putin loses Crimea, that would mean the end of his claim on uh, whatever heritage of Peter the Great, Catherine the Great and all the rest of them, the Russian imperial glory um, and, and huge humiliation. Um, you know, even the blow up of the bridge, if it happens the second time, will be a huge blow to him. And exactly for this uh, from uh, for, for this reason, the Ukrainians realize this is his Achilles heel. Not Ukraine for Ukraine uh, for Ukraine. 
the Crimea is no longer only a beachhead from which Russia could deliver another attack, you know, strategic menace to Ukraine, pointing to its underbelly in the south, but it's also an opportunity, as uh, Khrushchev used to say about his partners, to grab Putin by the balls. I'm sorry for the expression. And if they uh, manage to ease uh, the Russian forces out of Sevastopol, the glory of the Russian Navy, and destroy the Black Sea Navy, that would be an intolerable humiliation for Putin, which in Ukrainian perspective would uh, kill all the birds they want to kill, not only uh, remove the Russian troops from the Ukrainian territory, but to topple uh, the autocratic regime of Putin. We want to thank you both for being with us. There's so much to discuss here, and we will continue to do so. Uh, professor Vladislav Zubak, professor of international history at the London School of Economics, speaking to us from London, and Wolfgang Sporer, the conflict manager and adjunct professor at the Hertie School in Berlin, Germany. We'll link to all of your pieces at democracynow.org. Next up, we go to Tel Aviv and Huara in the occupied West Bank. On Sunday, hundreds of Israeli settlers attacked the village in what's been described as a pogrom, all while the Israeli army looked on. Israel's new finance minister has called for Huara to be wiped out. Stay with us. Mala by the Palestinian artist Jul Wood. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. A top Israeli official has called for the Palestinian village of Huwara to be wiped out or erased, just days after hundreds of Israeli settlers attacked the city, setting cars and homes on fire and killing a Palestinian man who had just returned from Turkey, where he was helping with relief efforts after the earthquakes. Israel's far-right finance minister, Smotrich, made these shocking comments on Wednesday. The Palestinian village Hawara should be wiped out. The state needs to do it, not private citizens. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shteya visited Hawara Wednesday to meet with families who survived the violent attack. What we have seen here in this house is evidence of how big the crime carried out by the settlers and covered and protected by the army is. It is clear that this move is supported by a political decision from the Israeli government. Therefore, three sides are partners in this crime. The government, which takes the political decision, the army who is protecting, and the settlers who are implementing. 
This is what we saw here. The Israeli human rights group Petzelem accused Benjamin Netanyahu's government of backing a pogrom in Hawara. In a statement, the group said, quote, the Jewish supremacist regime carried out a pogrom in the villages around Nablus yesterday. This isn't loss of control. This is exactly what Israeli control looks like. The settlers carry out the attack. The military secures it. The politicians back it. It's a synergy. On Wednesday, Israeli Army Commander of the West Bank Major General Yehuda Fuchs admitted what happened in Hawara was a pogrom. The incident in Hawara was a pogrom carried out by outlaws. We were prepared as we prepare for every terror attack. There's a phenomenon of outlaws taking to intersections to throw stones and block Palestinian roads in the area. I don't think that collective punishment helps to combat terrorism. On the contrary, I think it might even cause terrorism. The settler attack in Hawara began hours after a Palestinian gunman shot dead two Israeli brothers from a nearby settlement. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government is continuing to face mass protests from Israelis opposed to plans to overhaul Israel's legal system. On Wednesday, Israeli police fired stun grenades and wa water cannons at Israeli protesters taking part in a so-called day of disruption, as thousands protested in Tel Aviv. We're joined now by two guests. Gidon Levy is with us. He's an award-winning Israeli journalist and author, columnist with the newspaper Haaretz, member of its editorial board. His latest piece is headlined, Israeli Settlers Hawara Pogrom was a preview of Sabra and Shatila II. Gideon Levy is also the author of the book, The Punishment of Gaza. And Saddam Omar is with us, a resident of Hawara who witnessed the attacks by Israeli settlers. Let us begin there. Saddam, can you talk about what happened on Sunday? Where were you in Hawara? And describe where Hawara is in the occupied West Bank. First of all, good morning to you and to everybody. Uh, I want just to let, let me remind you and everyone that this uh, tragedy started not on Sunday. This started for more than 106 years, 1917, and our suffering is going on since that time. Actually, Israel, as you know, occupied West Bank, Palestine, and Gaza Strip since 1967. And since that time, they violated, they violated international law by moving hundreds of thousands of Jewish-only squatters, colonists, into the Palestinian-occupied land. In response, Palestinians have been resisting the occupiers. For Hawara and what happened on Sunday night, it was not the first time and it was not only for killing of two Israelis in Hawara. What happened really was a few days before when Israel, Israeli army did a massacre in Nablus. They killed 11 people, including two old men in, the, in their late 70s and few children. This Terrorism led by the Israeli army is a continuous action since 1967 and before that time. 
this the 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 campaign that happened in Hawara on Sunday night was protected, planned, organized by the Israeli army. Those squatters helped, protected, organized the settlers to do what they did. The army prevented any citizen to defend himself. And you saw what happened with Samah al-Aqtash, a 37-year-old man who recently came back from Turkey, helping people there after the catastrophe of the earthquake. A few days later, those squatters, barbarian settlers, attacked him. He was trying to defend his wife, mother, sisters, children. But they prevent him, prevented him and killed him with cold blood. The army now has handed Benset control by Smutrich and Ben Gavir, who are already settlers. This massacre, this accident happened in Hawara, supposed to making the settlers to take control of the whole West Bank. The Israel occupation army is complicit in a drastic surge in terrorism committed by Israeli colonists against Palestinian civilians. The recent terrorist attack against the residents of Hawara was pre-planned, pre-prepared by the occupation army and the settler militias. We all heard what Smotrich said. Hawara must be wiped out. It's not a new thing. The, the, the previous militias of those settlers already wiped out more than 500 villages and towns of Palestine when they occupied the lands of 48 and 67. Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were evicted from their houses and homes to the West Bank, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and world, worldwide. The extreme government of Israel is a threat to Palestinians, to Israelis themselves, to the region, and to the whole world. This is what I believe. Gideon Levy, could you uh, talk about what happened in Hawara and also the uh, massive increase in uh, settler violence since this far-right government came into power? You shouldn't start with this violent uh, government because the last year with the so-called moderate government was not any better. 
There were almost 200 Palestinians killed in this year, more than in any other year in the last 15 years. So we couldn't put all the blame on this government. I came to Hawara on the morning after. Hawara was practically under a, a curfew. And what I saw there, I saw very few times in 35 years of covering the occupation. It really looked like a town after, after a pogrom. There's no other way to describe it. Uh, quite uh, uh, horrified people and shocked people sitting in their homes, afraid to get out. All the shops closed and only traffic of, you won't believe it, Amy, the only traffic that was allowed was obviously the settlers who came back to see what they've done the night before and what they didn't complete. They did it in a very brutal way, as they always do. Don't forget there were 400 settlers in Hawara the night before, according to the army, which means they might have been even more. And nobody stopped them. And this is maybe the core issue. The fact that nobody stopped a raid of 400 uh, settlers on an innocent village tells you the whole story. Saddam, could you uh, describe now what the situation is in Hawara today? You said that immediately after the massacre, a curfew was imposed. What's the situation now? It's a total closure. And... Uh, Shops, supermarkets are totally closed. No one, nobody is allowed to open his, uh, his uh, shop or supermarket or whatever it is. If you try to open your shop, you will be arrested immediately. Yesterday, a citizen called Omar has been, had been arrested for trying to open his shop and he's violently treated. According to what we witnessed, the occupation army did not take measures to block the settlers' path to Hawara, nor did it stop them from systematically attacking Palestinians and their properties, nor did it carry out appropriate arrests. They claim they have arrests but till now, we, we saw nothing. The occupation army sought to let the settlers vent their anger. Following the settlers' terrorist campaign, the occupation government of Israel didn't take any significant actions to address the settlers' lawlessness. Instead, some occupation officials, just like Smotrich, publicly supported the settlers by saying words like Hawara should be wiped out. The Israeli settlers took advantage of the situation by inflicting millions of dollars of damage onto the town of Hawara, by destroying, burning, anything in sight. There was no specific target of their attacks. Rather, it was whatever happened to cross into their line of sight. I mean, trees, cars, car spare, car spare parts shops, homes, livestock, market stalls, shops, supermarkets, whatever they saw, they destroyed. They were being guarded by the Israeli army who trailed behind them a few meters. 
as a protection. Hundreds of residents were injured from the barbaric methods they utilized. They lit homes on fire while the residents were still inside. They used tear gas, they stored stones, they used iron rods. I want to ask... And they were... Yes, please. I wanted to bring Gideon Levy back into this, because we're seeing massive protests in the streets of Tel Aviv of Israelis, uh, now hit with um, stun grenades and water cannons. But they're not protesting what's happening in Hawara. They're protesting um, the uh, Israeli—Benjamin Netanyahu's attempt to gut the Israeli judiciary. Are these protests morphing into protests of what has happened in Huara, or are they just two completely different issues for Israelis? They are not two completely issues at all, because both deal with democracy. The problem is that the protest movement in Israel wants to keep an eye closed and not to see the occupation as part of the problem of the Israeli democratic regime or non-democratic regime. This is really outrageous, because it's not that they don't deal with Hawara. They do anything possible to break away from dealing with Hawara, with the occupation, with all those issues which are part and parcel of Israel's regime. And therefore, this protest, which I cannot participate by all means, is a protest over democracy for the Jews in the state of Israel. Nothing but this. And anyone who really looks for equality and democracy cannot participate in this in this uh, protest, as impressive as it is, as powerful as it is. But we have to remember they are concerned only about themselves only about democratic democratic regime for the Jews in Israel, not for anyone else who lives between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. Saddam, very quickly, we have just a minute. What do you think uh, the international community should be doing? How can the Palestinians be supported now, given this massive onslaught of violence? I, I, I want to, to add something that it was a barbaric sight that you can only describe by an ethnic cleansing. It's, it's very sure that this is the, the proper description for what happened. But for the international community, we need them to interfere and to bring peace and stability to the Middle East, not the United States. The United States of America is a party to the conflict. United States of America is a part of this conflict. It's not a referee. You are saying it's not the judge. It's not the proper judge for this conflict. Saddam, we have five the seconds. United States of America. Yes, yes. United States of America is providing the, uh, the occupiers with full support. They have to stop, and the uh, international community should interfere to protect the civilian Saddam Omar and Gideon Levy, thank you so much for being with us. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.